Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Welcome back to episode three of Catherine Doherty. So, Ren, you basically ended the entire season last episode, but you said there's more to come. You know, we we went through this roller coaster ride of a life that she has held so far. She's finally at the end of the episode. She had given up. Nah, given up may not be the right word. She she mutually left Friendship House and moved on. But you said her story wasn't over. Right. So she's left with nothing. She'd given up everything to start that ministry. It turned into Friendship House and all the rumors and gossip that was going on basically forced her to shut down Friendship House, right? So she's left with nothing in Toronto. And so she goes to visit her friend Dorothy Day in New York uh, just to land her on her feet somewhere. It's basically the only place that she had to go. So she goes to New York and she's staying with Dorothy Day for a, a few weeks. And while she's there, Father McGuire, who is a passionist priest, who is the editor of Sign Magazine, officially called Sign, a national Catholic magazine, heard that she was in town. And he had had Catherine write for him in the past as she wrote lots of articles for both that magazine and multiple other ones. Since she was nearby, he went and, and had her come visit, and he asked her to consider traveling to Europe to write articles for his magazine about Catholic action. So that sounds pretty uh, pretty interesting, maybe a little odd, but what exactly is Catholic action? I think a good description of Catholic action might be that it's a name for these were groups of lay Catholics in predominantly European countries like Spain, Italy, France, Belgium. I think they were active in Germany. They advocated for greater Catholic influence on society, that Catholics should be more vigorous in trying to shape the social, civil, cultural climate of the countries they were in, kind of turn them back to Christendom. They got started in the 19th century, and they were especially attempting to find a way to both counteract communism after World War I and then also counteract fascism as it rose to prominence in the 1930s. I think they're still around today in some in some of those countries to some degree. Right. And so Catherine accepts this, this assignment, and she takes off for Europe. And the first place she goes is Portugal. And she had some meetings there with the prime minister and such. The most interesting piece of what happens in Portugal, I think, though, is that she stays with her friend Maria there, and she meets Maria's sister, Vincentia. And Vincentia had been present at the Miracle of the Sun at Fatima. Pretty wild. Wow. Yeah. And so she got to hear that, you know, Vincentia's firsthand account of being present at the Miracle of the Sun. Go look it up if you don't know what it is. It's pretty crazy. Uh, and then she also, Vincentia, takes Catherine to visit Fatima. This is still when it's in its primitive state, as she puts it. Uh, it's not a built-up shrine or anything yet like it is today. So pretty cool connection there. And then from Portugal, she keeps traveling across Europe, so she makes a stop in Spain. Uh, and this is in the midst of the Spanish Civil War. And she she describes in her autobiography the things that she sees. We're not going to describe them here. But she sees some horrible, horrible things happen to both living people, a desecration of dead bodies as well in cemeteries, and acts of sacrilege in churches that are just unspeakable. So it's horrible. She gets out of there as fast as she can and flees to France, where she spends some time recuperating and then she does something interesting. She gets a 50-day work visa and works at a delicatessen in a communist part of Paris. 
just to get a sense of what communism is like on the ground. Is it growing? Is it thriving? What's going on? So she's just gathering these life experiences that give her a really good understanding of what's going on, especially with communism around the world. Uh, she also meets with groups like the Little Brothers of the Poor, the Companions of St. Francis, and she goes into Belgium, meets the young Christian workers and the young farmers, and then she comes back and writes her article for Sign Magazine, and it's not very hopeful. Uh, based on what she saw across Europe, she says that the Catholic action is light on the action and heavy on talking. All they do is sit around and have discussions, and there's just too much talking. She says, it made me tired, and I imagine that the Lord himself would walk away from those endless discussions. So she's definitely a woman of action, right? Not of talking. Yeah, and I think I think her life up to this point points exactly to that direction, that she she doesn't like to talk about it. She likes to take the action. She likes to get things done. She is a doer, not a talker. That's correct, Matt. So she comes back from that trip, and what she does actually is start up a new friendship house in Harlem in 1938. And we're going to come back to that, but right after she starts that up, Sign Magazine sends her back to Europe again in 1939 to Warsaw, Poland, to see how this is right after the German invasion of Poland. And so they want to see how Catholics are faring. And she's there, and she gets caught up basically in the fighting, and it gets bad. And So she once again takes up a post working as a nurse in a trauma tent, right, uh, in the middle of these attacks. And it's even worse than her experience in World War One. She says, in Warsaw, I realized that in Russia, in World War One, I, I had only been on the edge of hell. Now I was in hell itself. In Russia, everybody that was coming to her for nursing needs were soldiers. And here it was maimed children and women and old men. And it was just a horrible experience. And it only got worse. Uh, by September of that year, a group of other journalists who were there decided, we got to get out of here before things get any worse than they already are. And so they took Catherine with them, and they escaped by foot to Hungary, about 250 miles away. So it took them quite a long time to travel by foot, avoiding being shot at and bombed by planes and all these other horrible things that were going on. But she escaped it, and she went back to Harlem to work at the Friendship House. She's almost kind of recapitulating that period of her life during... The Russian Revolution, the the Russian Civil War, escaping to Finland. I mean, it just it all sounds so familiar, but but worse. Sort of like how World War II was a worse version of World War One. Do you have thoughts or comments to share with the show? Or ideas for future holy donor subjects? Send them to us, and your comments might be included in a season rap party. Get in touch with us on Instagram at Holy Donors. You know the names DuPont, General Motors, and the Empire State Building, of course. You probably don't know the man who was instrumental in the building of all of them. Hear more about John Raskob, a man who was an incredible capitalist and an incredible philanthropist on the Holy Donors podcast, Season 2, The Capitalist. So Ren, she goes back to Harlem, but goes back to the Friendship House. From my my history knowledge of that time frame of Harlem, it was divided. But now now we're talking not communism, but racial, right? I mean, wasn't that a very racial city, a racial area to be in? Yes. So Catherine was shocked by the racial prejudice that she encountered there, right? She was doing a very similar ministry to what she had been doing in Toronto, but it, was, it had a very different feel because of the amount of racial prejudice there. 
what she says is that when she was in the southern United States, she encountered racial prejudice outright, but in the north, she encountered an acceptance that that's just the way it is, right? So even though there wasn't necessarily the overt racial prejudice, there was a maybe even deeper and more, like a more insidious version of racial prejudice there. So she took up the work. She started serving the poor and especially uh, racial minorities. And she also started lecturing on the topic of racial prejudice around the country. And this this lecturing, like we talked about earlier, she didn't really pull punches. She wasn't very diplomatic in the way she approached it. She was very. She didn't sugarcoat what she was saying. Exactly. And she she was probably saying, "There's a lot of you in the audience who will help out your fellow man if they look the same as you, but somebody who looks differently than you." You know, you don't see them. You turn a blind eye to them. Right. And that goes to that point you were making about, she said that there was a, that's just the way it is, attitude in the northern states. I mean, this this had to be a tough time for her. She's making no no bones about what she's saying. She's stating it exactly how she sees it. But it had to affect how she was portrayed in, in Harlem, in, in the community. How did all of that change? So, yeah, one of... Her primary missions in Harlem was to build bridges to those in need in the community right, by building relationships. And she did that with what she called her chit-chat apostolate. So she lived four blocks away from the Friendship House in Harlem in a little apartment. And each morning she would walk that four blocks to the Friendship House, but it would take her about 45 minutes because she would stop and chit-chat with everybody that she could along the way. And this helped her build relationships, uh, build trust locally, and it also helped her to know what's going on, who's in need, what's the news, all of those things. And that was her main focus, at least every morning uh, as she started working at the Friendship House. But she also built credibility by living like the people that she was living in the midst of, right? She said, one must live like those with whom one wishes to identify. It would not have been possible to identify ourselves with those in Harlem if we had not lived in Harlem. We had to be poor as they were poor. We had to experience the way of life they experienced. We had to experience the crowded apartments with their poor ventilation, unbearably hot in the summer and unbearably cold in the winter. We had to experience the poor plumbing, which at times could threaten our very lives. One had to accept these things, the bed bugs, the cockroaches, the noisy streets, the blaring radios that vied with one another day and night, in making hideous noises. You know who this reminds me of, a group that's very much carrying on the same charism, are those Franciscan Friars of the Renewal who have their house in Harlem. They were the gray habits. Father Benedict Rochelle was the, the founder of that particular group. But that sounds very much like what they live in Harlem, their house is in Harlem, and that sounds very much like the attitude that they take. They live in poverty, in community, and they they get to know and get out on the streets and and learn the needs of of the people in in that that part of Harlem where they're stationed. Yeah, that's great. So one other thing of note here uh, at this time when she was in Harlem is that she also continued her mission of spreading awareness about communism within the church. So she was approached by a panel of bishops to travel the the southern U.S. dioceses and personally tell the, the bishops there about the dangers of communism within the church. And this panel of bishops that sent her was some familiar names. That included Cardinal Spellman of New York, who we talked about back with John Raskob, and also with George Strake in previous seasons of Holy Donors. It included Cardinal Stritch of Chicago, who was mm-hmm. fundamental in Danny Thomas's life. Gave him his marching orders to go to Memphis. Let's go right. listen to season one. And then Bishop Scheel, also of Chicago. 
Hey, Matt. Yeah. So I know a couple years ago, you went through a pretty intensive weight loss program, right? I did. Yeah. So did you just wake up one day and the weight was gone? No, I put together a plan and then I executed that plan and I had people in place to keep me accountable. Yeah. And so I also know that you just recently successfully completed a $25 million plus capital campaign, right? We did, yes. Yeah, same thing. You just woke up and the money was there? No, not exactly. We, uh, we did something very similar. We put together a plan, executed the plan, and we had a team around us that helped keep us accountable to that plan. And it just so happened to be it was Petrus. Yeah. So Petrus loved working with you on that project. And we work with organizations all over the place, Catholic parishes, nonprofits, campus ministries, high schools, middle schools. And that's what we do is we help to create a plan, execute on that plan, and then keep everybody accountable, moving in the right direction. So if you're listening and your organization needs to do a capital campaign, build a new building, add staff, start an endowment, Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash campaign to learn more about working with us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And so while Catherine is working in Harlem, a journalist comes to visit Friendship House. He's writing a story about the city of Harlem for Liberty Magazine. And he is a well-known journalist. He's the highest paid journalist in America at the time. And his name is Eddie Doherty. Eddie Doherty? Yes. Yeah, so... He came and he seemed to immediately have a connection with Catherine, although she resisted it. One connection is they have the exact same last name. <laughs> <laughs> At this time, she was, in fact, a Baroness de Hook. Hey, there we go. What the so, heck? I thought uh, they had the same name. We'll see how they end up with the same name. What the heck? <laughs> Man, Randy spoiled it. <laughs> Uh, so Eddie comes and he writes out a $400 check after meeting with them for Friendship House, which is about $5,000 today. And she says, you're a reporter. You you don't make that much money. You're just trying to impress us. And this check's probably going to bounce. But it didn't bounce. He was a very wealthy man, a very highly paid reporter. And he kept coming back to see Catherine. Uh, and he kind of wore her down over I time. I see where this is going. Yep, that's right. So She got her hooks into him and he just couldn't get away. Eddie has an interesting story. So kind of a tragic story to start. He was married twice. The first wife he had died in the Spanish flu in 1918. Tragic, right? And the second wife he had died from what's called a freak accident. She was out on a walk alone and she fell uh, apparently from a cliff and died. And all of a sudden he was left with two sons from the deaths of his two wives. And she was a widower. Two sons. Yes. Highest paid reporter in America. Yes. Lives in a big giant property, a nice estate. But the death of his second wife caused Eddie to really reflect on things. His grief kind of drove him to the church. So Hmm. this is where he kind of came back to the faith. Uh, Was he baptized Catholic? I believe so. Okay. Yep. And so his whole story of coming back to the faith is kind of what drew Catherine to him, Uh, him telling her this story. It was a big pivotal part of that. And they grew closer and closer together, but Catherine still resisted Eddie a little bit. She knew that he was wealthy, he had, you know, big estate, he had a great paying job, and she knew that if they were to pursue, you know, being married, she wasn't giving up Friendship House, so he would have to give up his life and his luxury to join her, and she didn't want to even present that choice to him. I'm going to assume that uh, he persisted just a little bit, since you spoiled it earlier. (laughs) 
He did. So uh, Catherine at the time was opening a friendship house in Chicago. So she was working in Chicago one day, and Eddie comes to Chicago, finds her there, and brings her to see Bishop Scheel with him, the bishop we had talked about earlier with the other two. And while in front of the bishop, Eddie gets down on his knee and proposes to Catherine. And this kind of shocks both Catherine and the bishop. Bishop Scheel says, Eddie, you cannot marry Catherine because you are well off. You have a high-paying job. If you want to marry her, Friendship House must come first. Eddie answered, I will give it all up for her sake because I love her. All right, said the bishop. Kneel down, kiss my cross, and repeat after me. That Friendship House will always come first and you second. You can continue to write, but she lives as a beggar, and so you will have to give away your money. Eddie agreed to all of this, and a date was set for the wedding. Wow. It's one thing to, to fall in love with, with a woman and to pledge your life to her, and but there's an added level of commitment, I think, when it involves the bishop telling you that you have to also give away all of your estate. You have to enter into that charism of, of life that you're— betrothed is already pursuing and he's already got two kids at this point i mean and he has two children to have to take care of yeah and he's already had two of his wives quote unquote taken from him what an example of personal sacrifice personal commitment love this was also a the starting point of more difficulties for them so Catherine and eddie did not tell the staff at the friendship house that they were getting married until after they were married so they got married pretty quickly uh, in June of 1943, the ceremony took place at the Bishop's Chapel in Chicago. And then, after a short three-day honeymoon, they went to Friendship House and announced that they were married. And as Catherine says, the shock was terrible. She says that she wasn't under vows as a lay apostle, and also because her childbearing years were over, and because Eddie was giving up everything for the apostolate, that they, uh, the staff accepted it, but there were still some underlying hard feelings there, it seems like. This was kind of the starting point of what would become some dissension within Friendship House against Catherine. Right? Another dissension within Ex the Friendship House. Yep, that's right. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of friendship going on. I no, know. It, was a, it was a difficult difficult apostolate. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of factors going on. Uh, and it's not exactly clear. I looked at lots of sources and couldn't find exactly the details of what happened and what the disagreements were. But as Catherine says, divisions developed among the staff of Friendship House. And in January 1947, they outvoted her, Catherine, on points that she considered essential to the apostolate. She saw this as a rejection of her vision of Friendship House. And so she stepped down as the director general. So again, I mean, she builds it. She's doing great work. And then it turns back on her and they kick her to the curb. Hmm. I will say it's interesting here as, as you read it and just uh, going through that she felt that she wasn't really thrown out, that she could have actually thrown out those who voted against her, but she chose not to. Right. She could have kind of fought back. She felt like she had the support of church authorities, but that since kind of the whole staff had more or less turned on her, that it wasn't worth fighting and causing a massive division, right, and lots of turmoil within Friendship House, and so she stepped down. You know, you'd think that eventually all of this stuff that happened to her would would come back. That's too much for one person to have to handle through a lifetime up to this point. It was a lot of stress, and she actually suffered her first heart attack in the midst of all this happening. She said she didn't pay much attention to it, but it affected her. 
Uh, but she at least had the support of Eddie to help her get through all of these struggles. All right, so I'm almost I'm almost kind of tired myself of asking the same question because <laughs> it seems she's up and she's down. She's up and she's down. And now, again, she's totally down. I mean, what's left? What does she do? Just like the end of last episode, she's lost it all, and it feels like it's the end, but there is still more to the story. <laughs> of course there is. Something that I was struck by in this particular episode was when she was going through that period of working for Sign Magazine, traveling around, functioning as a journalist, and kind of reporting on the, the wrongs of the world, there was a sense of frustration and hopelessness and despair almost growing in her. Some of the things that you quoted her saying, that she was getting away from her, from her calling. She was at peace, and she found meaning and knew that she was doing God's will when she was in direct service to the poor. That was her real, her, her calling, I think. I think that's why she had to go back and start the Friendship House in Harlem. I mean, she needed to get back to that. I think that's right, and I think that foreshadows where she's going to go from here with the end of the Friendship House in Harlem. So we'll, we'll find out how they finish out, how Catherine finishes out her story in episode four next week. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends. And check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Welcome back to... I just did it again. (laughs) Welcome back... Kind of like how World War I was a a worse version of World World War I. I mean, <laughs> 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 <laughs>